Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. And welcome back to uh, part three of this overview series that's being co-sponsored by Chabad South Africa and by Dominion Shul in Melbourne, the Shul of Love. And what we have been covering is an entire span of Jewish history. Uh, and I won't do too much prelude tonight or today, wherever you are. And we'll just remind ourselves of where we are up to. Minus 2,000 and 2,000 is our span of Jewish history of 4,000 years. Let's put some minuses in. got a feeling that the, uh, the uh, range of vision for the board is not what it was. Is it going to ruin things if I bring the board? It's okay, we're seeing it, we're all good? Okay, excellent. Sorry about these meta-narrative interruptions, but we have to get the frame right. So we've got minus 1,500, minus 500, and then we can 500. So what we've done is we divide Jewish history up into 500-year units. And as you know, I didn't make these 500-year units up. They, in fact, emerge from Jewish history itself. And we know that the Jewish people go through a major phase every 500 years. And if you understand the key spiritual project that's going on behind each 500-year block, then any of the details will immediately make sense. So in the first week, we looked at minus 500 to zero, and we called that period Bayit Sheni, or the Second Temple Period. Then, last week, we looked at this next 500-year period, which we called the Talmudic. the Talmudic, and that takes us up to round about the year 500 of the Common Era, and we looked at all sorts of details and circumstances that led up to where we are now, but in order to talk about the next 500 years, we're going to have to say a couple of things to begin with, because the first, the next 500 years we're going to look at, which is going to go from round about 500 to round about 1000, this incredibly critical period in Jewish history is called the Gaonic. The Gaonic. And don't worry, all of those terms we will explain and everything will be clear. But that's what we're going to look at this evening. And the Gaonic period is in some ways a misunderstood period by a lot of people because they don't know a lot about it. We know that in, of course, Jewish high schools, they're basically jumping from... Um, Bar Kochba to Rothschild, and uh, maybe they might mention the Rambam or Rashi in between, but uh, we kind of skip over these, these important 500-year periods that are critical to the development of the Jewish world, and they are critical to the development of Jewish identity, and it's absolutely impossible really to understand uh, how you get from here to here unless you go through here. And we're going to zoom in. We're going to zoom in. We're going to call this 500, and we're going to call this 1,000. 600, 700, 800, 900. So, this is the Garnic. 
And elsewhere, we have given entire series on the Garnic period. We've gone into great detail on it. We've looked at it because we know how important it is to understand the mechanics of Jewish history through the Garnic period. Remember, we always say it's not so much the dates that matter, it's the mechanics behind it. It's how we, how we roll as a people in the world, how we get from one place to another, one idea to another, one phenomenon to, each other, to another. And the Garnic period is critical for that. But in order to understand that, we have to know, first of all, the world that we are talking about. And so everything I'm going to talk for the next few minutes is, is about the Garnic period is grounded, for the first part, by understanding what the world looks like in a geopolitical sense. What does the Jewish world look like? And we know, therefore, I'm going to have to draw a map. And you would therefore be familiar with this. So that's going to be the Mediterranean. And there's Spain. There's Italy. There's Greece. There's Turkey. There's the land of Israel. There's Egypt. And there's North Africa. And for our purposes, the Jewish world is, well, the known world, really. Because although there are things going on in India and China to the east, what concerns us in Jewish history is where Jews are living. And at the moment, that known world to us is this. And it's divided into basically three domains. The first of those domains is here. That is Western Europe. That is Western Europe. And Western Europe, as we discussed last week, is currently in what you might call the Dark... Well, we do call it the Dark Ages. There's not a lot that's coming out that is particularly enlightened. Our general historical picture of it has been... You know, which is being uncovered and refined all the time, is that it's quite a boch. Not a lot of flush toilets going on. A lot of pagan tribes running around killing each other in the general process of becoming Christian. Most of these uh, nations which are going to become the core, you know, kind of like the, the, which are the embryos of what are going to become nation states that we might recognize. But a lot of these peoples are uh, in the process. We, we don't, for example, I mean, England doesn't become Christian until uh, the end of the, f the end of the 500s. Uh, the Franks a little bit before, but it's a slow and gradual process, and they've got their own economic and military challenges going on, and it's a fascinating period of history, but it's not, and there are, we do have evidence of some isolated, dotted Jewish communities around there, but it's not configuring large at the moment as we enter into the Gonic period. The other domain, and that, of course, is, is, is the chaos that emerges from the collapse of the Roman Empire. That's what that is. The other domain is going to be here. So this, we, might, we might call this Western Europe, for want of a better term. It didn't call itself Western Europe. It's a generic term for what's going on there. This is the Eastern Roman Empire. It's what remains of the Eastern Roman Empire, but we don't call it the Eastern Roman Empire so much anymore as we call it 
Byzantium. And Byzantium is a very strong Christian empire with a capital in Constantinople, the city that was founded by Constantine back in the 4th century. And that's the center of a self-concerned and growing Christian empire called Byzantium. And, the, and there are Jewish communities dotted all around here, not to mention the fact that they also control the land of Israel as we enter into this period. And then we have a third domain. And that third domain is here, and it is the Sassanid Persian or Sasanian Persian Empire. And that empire has control over an area that we now call, and was called then, Babylonia. And Babylonia is the same place as Babylon. It sits in Mesopotamia, it sits between the Euphrates and the Tigris in what is basically today Iraq. But we call it Babylonia in this period of history to distinguish it from Babylon, which is kind of like a thousand years earlier. But it's the same place. And it must have been interesting, once the center of the Jewish world shifted from Judea, now Palestine, after the Roman conquests, that we looked at last week, and it shifts to Babylonia, that people must have been living in what was kind of like a familiar world. Today, today, for example, when we live in America, or we live in Australia, we live in South Africa, we live in Europe, and we open a Tanakh, we open a, a, a Hebrew Bible, and it talks about the exiles being in Babylon, that doesn't really speak to us today, except from a kind of distant mental location. But for these Jews, even as late as this in Jewish history, 1,500 years ago, living in this period of the Gonic period, Babylon was Bavel was Babylon. So it made sense to them that if we didn't have access to the land of Israel, then this was going to be where the center of the exile was going to take place. And it was taking place. And we have, in fact, just produced the Talmud by the time we get into this period. So we already have put Babylonia on the map in terms of key spiritual contributions to the ongoing continuum of the Jewish people. But I'm going to zoom in now. All of this is by way of introduction so that we can get our head around this period. But there are certain things that we need to be aware of which background all of this period before we get into the nitty-gritty detail. I mean, I have to confess to you that I sometimes find the Gaonic period difficult to talk about because everything is so bitgalia. Everything is so revealed. This is the period that creates, in a sense, the spiritual conflicts of our age, even now. The great clash of civilizations. Now, now, <laughs> now, if before, it was, you know, Rome and Persia. But during this period, they are going to shed those masks and they are going to reveal themselves as a Sav and Yishmael in this period as we rise forth, as the two great spiritual ideologies emerge from those polarities. But I get ahead of myself. We're zooming in now to Babylonia. And we're zooming in to that world that created the Talmud. There's a whole lot of detail. Remember, 
as I've said before at the beginning, and I mentioned it last week, and I'll mention it again, we are only doing headlines. Everything I mention is a doorway into an incredible ocean of detail. And if you want to make yourself an expert on the late Persian Empire at the beginning of the Gonic period, you're welcome to, or you can take with you the summary, uh, and I do welcome you to, it's fascinating, but I'd take with you the summary that uh, not everything was brilliant for the Jews in the late Persian Empire. We looked last week at some tremendous persecutions that happened at the end of the Talmudic period. Things got a little better for a while, then they got worse, the better, worse, as the Persian Empire itself was in its, basically, in its death throes. And we're going to see that over the next century and a half before it finally collapses. But when we zoom in here into this Talmudic world, we find the emergence in a general sense throughout this century, throughout this particular century here, the beginning of the Gaonic period, the emergence of the two great academies that had been established in Babylonia already during the Talmudic period, the academies of Sura and Pumbedita. And without an understanding of that, we really will struggle to understand the criticality of the Gaonic period. Because if the Talmud told us what Jewish life should look like, it's the Gaonic period that tells us what Jewish life, and particularly communal life, does look like. This is the period that gives the rise to the Jewish community as we know it, because Jewish communities are starting to spread and grow and to fend for themselves. And it's not easy to do that in places where people have never met Jews and there's no one really around to ask what you should be doing. The heads of the academy of Sura and Pombadita, which were these enormous university-style institutions in Bavel that provided young Jewish men with the opportunity to rise above the ordinary surroundings that they must have felt themselves in to become great and acclaimed and make genuine contributions to the Jewish world, the heads of those establishments took the title of Gaon. At any one time, there was a Gaon of Surah and there was a Gaon of Pumbadita. And people will go, ah, oh, well, you know, someone had to be Gaon. I guess, you know, it was a title that they had, like a, like a vice-chancellor or something like that. So it's worth understanding what it took to become a Gaon. So basically, intellectual attainments and Torah study for Jews in Babylonia were really the only avenue they had to fully express themselves. So in a community that numbered anywhere between one and two million at this point, that's a lot of people wanting to climb that ladder. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands at any one time. If you were attached to the Academy of Sura or the Academy of Pumbadita, you would find that what you'd ultimately want to attain is to be one of the 70 major students, this model evolved from the Talmudic period, 70 major students to be sitting in front of the Gaon. Those 70 students were arranged in seven rows of 10 each. You would start at the back and you would climb your way forward until if you were great enough, you were one of the chosen to sit in the front row of Surah or the front row of Pombadita. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. If you had an uncle that 
40 years ago had sat in the front row at Surah, you'd still be talking about it. That would be major yichus. The greatest of the front row then had the opportunity to become a position that would sit in front of the row and directly in front of the Gaon, that would be the position of Aluf. If you became the Aluf of Surah or the Aluf of Pumbadita, that's, you, you, you were made. And your family was made and your, your name was made. You were one of the great, great giants, intellectual giants, not only of Torah, but these rabbis were expected to know everything that there was to know in the Jewish world because Torah has no bounds into where it reaches. So you would have had to know science. You would have had to know anatomy. You would have had to know everything in order to know Torah properly. Because, and then if you were great enough, you would eventually become the Gaon and the head of the academies. And the Gaonim of these academies were the spiritual leaders not only of Babylonia itself, but of the whole of the Jewish world. So it doesn't matter where you were living here, you knew that if there was an answer to be had to any question in Jewish law or practice, or guidance or wisdom, the answer was going to be found in Babylonia. And that was okay. You realized that you didn't have to go and live there, but you were definitely not the center. There is a definitive center to the Jewish world. The Geonim were the spiritual leaders, but they weren't the only leaders, were they? There was, of course, another institution that also partook in the leadership of world and Bab thank you, of world and Babylonian Jewry. And that's important to understand. All of this is backgrounding this entire area, era, whether we're going to talk about it here or here or here or here or here. All I'm talking about now with the Geonim is going on in the background of all of this. And that is the position within the Jewish world of the Resh Galuta, the Exilarch, the head of the exile, who was a descendant of the Davidic line. This was a royal descent prerogative. The Resh Galuta was the guy that if all the Jewish dreams right now were suddenly fulfilled and we got our own state and we rebuilt the temple and we appointed a king, this is the dude that would be king. Some were better, some were worse, but for want of a better or want for any alternative, that was the recognized Davidic line individual and therefore was ennobled and recognized by the Persian Empire, so enabled and authorized to speak with the royal government on behalf of the Jewish people. It was literally the official representative externally and internally, in a theoretical sense at least, it was the Rej Galuta that called the shots politically. As you can imagine, throughout this entire Gaonic period, there were times when there was considerable tension between the Geonim and the Resh Galuta. There was, in fact, in Babylonian Jewry, a tenuous balance of power. It was the... All appointments to the position of Gaon had to be ratified by the Resh Galuta. But the appointment to Resh Galuta had to be ratified by the Geonim. That balance of power was a fascinating aspect of Babylonian Jewry's wider political structure. 
But as I said before, these Geonim, and here's the really critical part, why, this, why, why it is after them that this entire period is named, is that they were guiding world Jewry in its most expansive phase. Creating institutions that we take for granted. All of the major core institutions of Jewish communal life that we take for granted today were created in the Gaonic period. And when we say things like institutions, we don't just mean things like, you know, communal kashrut or hevra kadishas, which also took their formal rise in this period, but even such foundational things as the Sidur, the Haggadah, the calendar, all of these uh, ideas and institutions reached their formative kind of form that we know them today in the Gaonic period. But I need to now zoom out and we're going to start looking at things in a little bit of detail. And I'm going to let you in on a secret that not a lot of people who study history are that aware of, although if you're studying it, you are aware of it, but some people who are interested in history don't always realise this, especially people who write letters to newspapers and things like that. The centre of the Jewish world is Babylonia. But like concentric circles outward from Babylonia, there are growing Jewish communities all around here, and Jewish communities are dotted all over what is now called the Arabian Peninsula. That is basically Saudi Arabia. And in fact, and we can't go into this in detail, this is an, an entire subject in itself. But the first half of the 500s actually sees the collapse of what had formerly existed as a Jewish kingdom called the Himyarite Kingdom that took up most of what is today Saudi Arabia. The whole background of the 5th and 6th centuries and the rise of Islam is that this entire area is influenced by Judaism. Medina, for example, was a major Jewish town. Now, a lot of people say, ah, oh, well, I mean, Saudi Arabia, I mean, what is it? It's just a bunch of sand. And we're not talking about Saudi Arabia today, where we know of all its oil reserves and so on. Then, this was, Arabia was just basically a bunch of sand. No one lived there except the Fremen. Except maybe in, that's a sci-fi reference from Dune. Uh, except maybe in the south, in Yemen, where it was a little bit fertile. But most of it was desert. And nobody bothered with it. But there was an entire Jewish kingdom that existed that collapsed during the 500s. It's not the case like when we say, you know, oh, there was Islam and then along came the Jews. Islam was born of Judaism in the same way that Christianity was. It backgrounds everything in this area during this century. If we look out a little further, we need to look at what is happening in this century 
in an overview sense, because now we're really skimming it like 10,000 feet over this, but or maybe 5,000, what is happening in the Christian world? Because something very important is taking shape in Byzantium and is going to have reverberating effects for us for a long, long time. Because in the middle of the 500s, you have an emperor like Justinian. And Justinian is really the first kind of identifiable point that we, that we look at when we start to see the rise of anti-Jewish decrees that are going to become the hallmark of the Middle Ages. Justinian's interforced conversions. And he wants a pure Christian empire. And he doesn't like the fact that Jews are running around apparently un unmolested and unharmed, even though they are denying Christ. And their very presence is an affront to us. Justinian's problem with Jews is classic Christian theological anti-Semitism. It doesn't make any sense for these guys to have equal rights and be the same as us and just wander around chewing their gum like nothing's ever happened. They killed Christ. They denied Christ. The whole of the New Testament tells us they were wrong. So how is it that they get the same kind of lifestyles that we have? This is a big question. This is a big question. And I'm not going to get on my soapbox now and talk about the implications of that going all the way down history, even until today. But these are big questions that people were asking. <coughs> but they really became solidified towards the end of that century with the rise of Pope Gregory the Great. Gregory was a pope. Remember that this whole world was not unified politically, but it did more or less overall have an allegiance to the Pope in Rome as the head of the Western Christian Church. This is before the split of East and West in religious terms, although what people are noticing is that there are significant differences between the way Christianity and particularly Christian worship and certain modes of expression are emerging in the East versus how they are in the West. And the Roman model is much more akin to the feudal model generally that's going to emerge in the Middle Ages. That's one dude at the top and everybody doing what they say. That's how the Romans understood things. That's how Europeans understand things. Whereas here, it wasn't entirely clear who exactly was in charge and what the relationships were between the king and the various religious leaders and so on. It wasn't as clear. It is Gregory, at the end of this century, and remember, it is Gregory who sends out his great big Gregorian missions to convert all sorts of peoples. And it is Gregory who says, look, here's the situation with the Jews. You're right. It's a question. It's a problem. But we can't kill them. But at the same time, we don't have to give them too much nachas. The whole theological picture of Gregory is the basis of the idea that Jews in Christian countries need to remain at a more or less humiliated level. We can't kill them because we need them to be around. 
We need them to be around because when Jesus comes back, we need the Jews to be the witnesses who are going to say, Ah, of course, how wrong we were. He is our Messiah and that's the big moment. But if we don't have any Jews to say that, it kind of takes away a little bit of the, uh, of the sting of that whole idea. But we need to degrade them. But at the same time, protect them sufficiently that they will still be around. This idea, these anti-Semitic Christian ideas are emerging during this period and are starting to become formalized. That Gregorian doctrine is going to take us all the way through basically for the next thousand years at least. And there's just one more word on the Christian world, and sometimes also overlooked by people who dabble in history, is that there is one place in Europe where they've actually got their kind of Christian thing going on, they've actually got a Christian kingdom going on, and that is Spain, in the Visigoth kingdom of Spain. The Visigoths. And they are making life hard for the Jews. This is the century when Christian kingdoms all over this area are finding out how they are going to deal with their Jews. And the Visigoths decided pretty much very early on that they were going to adopt a picture that is going to become the classic European picture later on. And they were going to persecute them, put decrees on them, banish them, bring them back, more decrees, more persecution, put them out, bring them back, that whole picture starts very, very early at that stage in Christian Spain. Fortunately, it's not going to go on for too long. But that picture is happening. So there's the Christian world as we see it. So without a doubt, although Jewish communities are getting established in some ways in the Christian world, we're starting to see the rise of these distinct domain. Now, <laughs> I'm going to rub that map off because... I need to draw it again. Do you know why I need to draw it again? I need to draw it again because the entire world is about to change. Once we get to the 600s, I need to point out to you something extremely important that is about to happen before the world changes. And something that is often not spoken about in general historical discourse. If you're sitting at that fancy dinner party and this comes up, you'll look very clever if you know about it, but it is critically important. You know what I'm going to talk about? Okay, that's good. At the end of this century and the beginning of the next, as the 500s turn into the 600s, there are a series of punishing and exhausting wars that are happening between the Byzantine Empire the Christian Byzantine Empire and the last throes of the Sassanid Persian Empire. They are fighting border wars. Which piece of territory do you think is going to be at the border of those wars? Israel, the land of Israel. It's happening right here. And the land of Israel once again becomes the, sub the subject of imperial yearnings and by the time we get to around 614 the Persians have the upper hand and they make a big thrust into the land of Israel and they capture it and they capture it with Jewish militias who fight for the Persians 
because clearly the Sassanids are no picnic, but they're better for the Jews than the Christians. And they push in and they take it for Persia with an understanding that if the Jews captured Jerusalem for the Persian Empire, the Jews can control it and they can keep it and they can do with it whatever they feel they need to do. And we did. We took Jerusalem under a fascinating figure, led by a fascinating figure called No, Bemet. Nehemiah ben Chushiel, who is mentioned in very late Midrashic texts as a messianic figure, led an entire Jewish army on behalf of the Persian Empire, took Jerusalem and went about establishing a Jewish state in the land of Israel in 614. I've got to tell you that... Um, it didn't go well. It lasted for about three years. And I also got to tell you, and I don't want people to get shocked, but our behavior was not brilliant. We went at the existing Christian populations in a very brutal way. And in the end, the Persians basically double-crossed us and gave the whole city and the area back to the Byzantines in a big kind of peace deal. And we got sold out with it. And that then meant that we then had to endure all the revenge reprisals for all of that. But it's an important episode. It's a three-year bubble. I keep saying it is not the case that the Jewish people wait around until they get the energy or the desire to go back and create a state in the land of Israel. We are always waiting to do that. We saw it under Julian, the apostate, that little window. We see it in this window now. And we don't have to wait long. Well, we do have to wait a long time for the next one. But as soon as the conditions are right, we're in. It is one of the great primary directives of the Jewish people to establish itself in the land of Israel. And we attempted to do that. But it was very, very ethically problematic, some of the things happening there. And it, whether that was behind why it collapsed or not. But... It wasn't going to last. Just you can picture the board now because we're going to uh, we're going to change. It's going to be the same map, but I'm going to. Uh, I have to get out of the way. Apparently, it's going to be the same map, but we are going to uh, look at it again in a, with a, something else in mind. Remember, all of this stuff's going on in the background. The Rish Galuta, Sura, Pumbadita, it's all happening. But here's our world. Watch carefully. If you don't know what I'm about to tell you, watch carefully. There's the world. And we have three... Well, let's... Let's put... Um, let's put our... Ma, our country's in here. So, Italy, Greece, Turkey, the land of Israel, Egypt, Babylonia, North Africa, and we've got that's the Western Christian world. This is Byzantium, although 
uh, yeah, Byzantium now controlling the land of Israel, and this is the Persian Empire. And this entire picture is going to change because in 610 is when Muhammad, having spent quite a number of, you know, quite a few years wandering around this Arabian Peninsula, soaked in kind of like this syncretistic Jewish spiritual background, emerges with a set of revelations that came from, he claims, came from the angel Gabriel in a cave, which he calls the Koran. And in an absolutely astonishing and dynamic ripping apart of everything that had gone on before, in an explosive expansion, Islam just... The Persian Empire, gone. The Byzantine Empire, shrinking and freaking out. Islam continues on. During the 600s, of course, by 638 in the Battle of Yamuk, and then in 638 it takes Jerusalem, so the land of Israel is now under Islam. It eventually conquers all of the Persian Empire, and it keeps going, and it keeps going, and it rolls across North Africa. Of course, the Rashidun Caliphate wanted Jerusalem very much, it was a great symbol for them. They built the Mosque of Al-Aqsa. And by the end of the century already, uh, by the end of the 600s, they have, you know, got the pact of, uh, well, well, they've built the Dome of the Rock. And they have worked out how these different Christian and Jewish populations are going to live under their rule, under the concept of the Dimi tax and so on. So Islam is organized to some extent. And they keep rolling and they keep rolling and they keep rolling. Now, I'm going to talk for a minute because if you are at that dinner party and the Islamic conquest of the Persian Empire does come up and the Islamic expansions of the 7th century do come up in, a context, in the context of Jewish history, then there's a very important individual you're going to have to know about. An individual whose life is to some extent shrouded in legend, but we do have quite a concrete grasp of his historical persona. And that is an individual that was born in the Persian Empire before the Islamic conquest. And he was born in, under very unusual circumstances because one of the last Persian kings in the early six, late 500, early 600s, in a usual fit of anti-Semitic persecution, decided that he was going to encef in well I'm not going to try to say the word but he was going to try and uh, eliminate any political um, ambition on behalf of the Jews within the Persian Empire and he was going to eliminate the entire family of the Resh Galuta of the Davidic line and he started exterminating everybody that was every male that came from the Davidic line and then one night, famously, according to the famous legend, he has a dream. And when that dream is explained to him, he's told that the guy in his, he dreamt of an orchard and that he was chopping down trees and an old man came and whacked him on the head. And obviously it was explained to him that the trees you're chopping down are the family of the Resh Galuta. And the person who whacked you on the head was King David. 
and you now have a divine obligation to restore and maintain the house of the Resh Galuta. They brought the Resh Galuta who he'd killed. They brought his widow and she was pregnant. She had a son and that son grew up very, very well looked after. With a lot of good security on that son on behalf of the Persian Empire. And his name was Bustanai because of the word Bustan meaning an orchard. This is the famous story and that background's Bustanai. But what is fascinating about that is that when Islam comes in and we have two different, we have three different traditions of this because we have a Jewish tradition and we have a Sunni tradition and we have a Shia tradition. We have Islamic traditions of this. But whichever caliph it was, whether it was Ali or whether it was Omar, they, they, uh, it wouldn't have been Omar, but whether, whether it was Ali or not, it was brought in and that is the moment that the caliphate recognizes the position of the Rejgaluta and they marry Bustanai to the last remaining princess of the Persian Empire, which in itself recognizes the noble royal status of the Rej Galuta. And I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You're going, well, how is that? Isn't the Rej Galuta supposed to be from? And she's not Jewish. That question is dealt with in Ghanic literature quite a number of times throughout the Ghanic period about the descendants of Bustanai, whether they are in fact halakhically Jewish. And it turns out that it was all decided that she was. That she converted and that all the descendants were Jewish. Interesting, fascinating aspect of it. So Bustanai is someone you're going to want to know about and he continues the whole concept of the Rish Galuta, which was recognized by the early caliphate. But this expansion keeps going until the year 711. In fact, I'm going to do that in brown. I'm going to do that in pink. What's big about 7-Eleven? As you know. Slurpees. Sorry? Slurpees, yes. The beginning of 24-hour shops. But 7-Eleven is the year that Islam rolls in to Spain and conquers Spain. They're the ones that put an end to those awful Visigoths. And they are the ones that conquer a European country for Islam and who lay the foundations for what is going to become the golden age of Spain. It is not yet the case that it's the golden age in the early 700s. But the Muslims who conquered Spain were a much more chilled Muslims than we might see at other times in history. They didn't have a problem with Jews and they kind of were happy for Jews to start settling up within the new Al-Andalus, the new Islamic Spain that was taking shape here. At the same time, during the 700s, we see a shift within the Islamic world from the Umayyad Caliphate to the Abbasid Caliphate, a shift from Damascus to Baghdad, the Abbasid Caliphate is much more ideologically expansive than the Umayyad, but the Umayyad Caliphate itself eventually escapes and reorganizes itself in Spain. That's what's going to happen over the next century or two to become eventually the Cordovan Caliphate. We are not yet at the golden age of Spain, but the conditions are laid for that. 
But now I need to take us back because I need to go meanwhile back in Babylonia because there are things happening in the 700s back in Babylonia under our new Islamic rulers that we're going to have to talk about because without this it's impossible also to go forward. And what we realize is that by the time you get to the 700s in the Abbasid Caliphate, in Babylon, in Babylonia, Surah and Pumbadita are going through the usual cycles of up and down, but there are starting to rise some incredible challenges intellectually and in other ways in the Jewish world. And probably the most significant of them, which is going to be a feature of the entire late Gaonic and early medieval periods is the rise of a fascinating reform movement within Judaism that we still see echoes of today, even within contemporary Jewish reform movements. We start to see this, uh, we see this idea again, but it, and, it, and it's even happened before, but this is the most famous manifestation of it, and it is this. It started in the 700s, generally attributed... Oh, one second, if that's... One second, that's 600. Oh, I made that 600. That's ridiculous. How would that be 600? That's 600. That's 700. So 711 is there. See one in a tamla, we need to stay attached to it. So we're talking really here in the middle of the 700s. This new reform movement is generally attributed to a guy called... Anan ben David, it's a good colour for him, orange. Anan ben David. Anan ben David is actually part, was part of the Resh Galuta's family. In fact, according to a number of accounts, he was kind of like the most brilliant guy of his generation and was fully expecting that he was going to become Resh Galuta. And it was when he was passed over for that position that he started to get all sorts of ideas about why... Uh, why his election was stolen, and what exactly the rabbis had up their sleeves. And he tells you this. Everything the rabbis told you in the Talmud is bunk. There's no oral Torah. I mean, there is, but they made it up. And if they made it up, well, so can I. At the end of the day, all we actually have is what the Torah tells us to do. He was a literalist. There's no oral Torah. It's just what the Torah says. And that we know as the famous movement of the Karaim or Karaism. Now the Karaites are fascinating. Because I'm here to tell you they weren't exactly Amaratzim. They weren't exactly ignoramuses. They knew very, very well what they were talking about. They had a very, very different perspective and they developed very, very elaborate ideas about what Karaism should be. But it put the rabbinic world, based in Babylonia, into an overload defensive, obviously, to protect the unique traditions of the Jewish people which are transmitted through the oral Torah and which make sense of the written Torah. 
And we're not going to talk about that tonight in great detail, even though we could. We could do an entire separate lecture on Karaism just in its first two centuries, which is unbelievably interesting. But we can look at a couple of ways in which the Karaites did affect the Jewish world. And the most famous way, the most famous kind of outcome of the struggle between rabbis defending the oral Torah traditions of the Talmud and the Karaites is what? Cholent. Cholent. It was the Karaites who were saying you can't have a fire on Shabbat. Shabbat means you eat cold food in the dark. End of story. That's Shabbat. And the rabbis are saying, no, that's not our old Torah tradition. The Torah says you can't light a fire on Shabbat. But if you've lit that fire and can have it maintained from before Shabbat, then there's no reason you can't have hot food on Shabbat. Now, we're going to institute some very, very core customs in the Jewish world to illustrate that. And we're going to want everybody to have a hot meal on Shabbat to prove the Karaites wrong. And we're not talking about Friday night because that's easy. We're talking about Shabbat lunch. We, we want you to eat a stew that has been sitting on a heat sauce since before Shabbat for 16, 18 hours, and you can still eat it hot in the middle of the afternoon. And that, of course, led to a great variety of different versions of Cholent. It's Cholent in the Ashkenazic world and Hamin in the, in the more Oriental communities. But it's the same idea. Where our entire continuum is based upon the idea of the dynamic application of the written Torah through the oral Torah in an unbroken chain of transmission that has really, really provided the Jewish people with their unique spiritual treasures. And then there's one other thing I just want to talk about in the 700s for one minute, because if I don't talk about this, you'll go, oh, he didn't talk about this. And that is that round about this time, in circumstances that are quite obscure and covered in a lot of historical mist, but somewhere in this century, we understand, those of, who go down this road will tell you that's kind of where it's happening, much further to the east and north, in the southern Caucasus, around here, and it's important to understand this because it symbolizes the whole history of the time, there is a nomadic people who find themselves wedged between these two distinct worlds. The Christian world, which is kind of looking something like that. And remember that it starts here because in 732, the expansion of Islam got stopped. Why, is, why did all Europe not get conquered by Islam? So they, they, they took Spain in 711 and they went there, but they got stopped by Charles Martel in 732. We're going to come back and talk about him in a second. But it goes from here all the way around here. This is the Christian world. And these people found themselves wedged. They are called, these people are called the Khazars. And they found themselves wedged between the Christian world and the Islamic world. And what are you going to do? You need a religion. If you're going to become Christian, Islam's going to move right into you. If you're going to become Islamic, you're going to be at war with the Christian world. I know, 
Let's become Jewish. Let's adopt Judaism as the state religion of our national entity. And so for the next couple of centuries, there is in fact a Jewish kingdom of the Khazars sitting around about here that has correspondence with Babylon, has correspondence with Spain and so on. As I said, covered by a lot of historical mist and there's different views within capital H history about the Khazars, but it's important for us to be aware of who they are. Why I find them so fascinating is not so much on the truth of the details that we hear about the Khazars, but what they represent about that stage in history of the struggle between Islam and Christianity. Yehuda Halevi, of course, next week, is going to write about the Khazars in a very romantic theological way, but the story really begins in the 700s. Now I'm going to go from the extreme east, and we're going to go all the way to the other side of the Christian Empire. We're going to go to here because here's something else we need to realize if we're going to bring ourselves a little further along the road than just primary level Jewish education and Jewish history. Because everybody's going on about the golden age of Spain. And the golden age of Spain, we're not quite there yet by the time we're in the early 800s. That's not going to be for another 100 years or so is when it's going to really take off. So we're not in the Golden Age of Spain, but we are in something extremely unique here. Because in the year 800, all of those European nations that have been gradually Christianizing coalesce into a unified Europe, the first and original EU. Only they don't call themselves the EU. They coalesce themselves into a new arisen version of the Roman Empire called the Holy Roman Empire, which is going to be Christian and is going to have an emperor. And in the year 800, Charles Martel's grandson, Charles, has himself crowned king, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And he goes on to become, of course, Charlemagne. And what we see, he's the king of the Franks, and then he becomes the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And what we're going to see for the next half a century or so after Charlemagne is what could be rightly called the golden age of the empire of the Franks. Because Charlemagne had almost exemplary relations with Jews, and Jewish communities, even having discourse with Jews as far away as the court of the Resh Galuta in Babylonia. And he had Jews representing back and forth, and he allowed Jews quite considerable rights and opportunities within the Frankish, within the Carolingian Empire. And if Charlemagne was good, his son, Louis the Pious, was his dad on crack. In fact, Louis the Pious was so good to the Jews. I mean, when people go on and on and on in the next century about Abdul Rahman and all the rest of it, the Cordova Caliphate, but what could have been the alternative history in Europe is astonishing. Some historians will tell you that Louis the Pious even lost his kingdom, and he did. He, had, he, he got thrown out of the kingdom because of his relations with Jews. There were priests in Louis the Pious's court 
who converted to Judaism. The Jews were allowed full intellectual and artistic and economic rights under Louis the Pious. Unfortunately for them and for us in a way, that got lost after, by the time you get to the end of this period already, Germany and France, the areas of the Frankish kingdom are already kind of starting to be mired in the same sort of anti-Semitism from its rulers that we're going to see later on. But this is a unique window. A unique window. I know that there's a lot of zooming in and out and going back and forth across the map, but there's no other way to really talk about the Gonic period except in this way. I want to come now back to Babylonia because things are busy. We're starting to see some seriously important contributions by the Geonim going forward because we are getting demands on them from communities that are starting to flourish right across North Africa and Spain and in Europe. They know they're not in Babylonia. And they know that spiritual direction in all areas of Jewish law and practice has to come from Babylonia. But they don't know how to do basic, basic things. It's not the case that you can pop down to your local Jewish bookstore and buy an art scroll. Forget the fact that there's no copies of the Talmud in Europe. There are no Sidurim. How do we even know what to pray? Okay, we've established a Jewish community. We want to do the right thing. Got in touch with Babylonia. We have a shul. We have a mikvah. We have a, but uh, what do we do? What are we doing? So they write to Babylonia and go, look, I mean, we need, we need people who know how to pray. We need, we need to know what to pray. What's the order of service? What is the order of service? What comes first, the Shema or the Amidah? And is there anything else? As a result of these types of inquiries and questions, the Geonim are by default creating the whole archetypes of Jewish communities in the letters and instructions that they sent. And perhaps the most famous example of that is in the middle of the 800s with the, with the great Gaon of Amram, Amram Gaon's famous Sidur, which became kind of like the prototype Sidur for communities right across the known Jewish world. There were other versions, but his is the most famous. Similarly, others were starting to send the very first versions of the Talmud and so on, so that we can start, these communities can start their own indigenous, authentic Torah scholarship. This is a time of tremendous growth in that kind of facilitation. But the challenges weren't all coming from without, and the challenges were not all to do with what do we do. There were two very, very important growing fundamental challenges intellectually. And it is these two intellectual challenges combined that probably more than anything else led to the decline of Surah and Pumbadita towards the end of the 800s. And the two challenges are familiar to us. One challenge was coming from Islam. It was an intellectual and theological challenge from the, under the Abbasid Caliphate on the rise of Islamic philosophy because 
Islamic thinkers were starting to read Aristotle and Plato. And they were starting to reconcile that with Islam. And that became a very impressive intellectual philosophical project called the Kalam. We'll come back to the Kalam in a moment. We've also got the challenges of Karaism. And we've got the challenges of people like Hiwi of Balkh. Hiwi, serious apikurs. And he's, he's, living in a, he's coming from a place called Balkh in Afghanistan. Any you been to Balkh? No. And Hiwi is, um, writes a book called 200 Unanswerable Questions on Judaism. It's the sort of thing that you might find someone writing on the internet, you know, today, kind of a Richard Dawkins figure. And he really, really got into the heads of a lot of people with his critique of rabbinic Judaism and the Torah and so on. And that's not to say that Hiwi of Balkh can't be dealt with or answered, but you still need people of considerable intellectual stature to be able to do that. And if you don't have them, then your fundamental institutions are going to lose their prestige. And that, unfortunately, is the picture as we move into the 900s. But, as always in Jewish history, you have a problem, and then God, through the generations, brings the solution often in the form of a particularly talented individual whose entire mindset seems designed to answer those problems. Because just when Surah and Pubdita are perhaps their lowest ebb for hundreds of years, after a glorious history, but the embers are starting to, to lose some of their glow as we think that the thing is over, suddenly... They flare up with probably the greatest mind and contributor of the entire Gaonic period. And you all know who I'm about to talk about, because if you're sitting around talking about the Gaonic period, there's only one Gaon that you would have to know if you were to know any of them. You should know more. I mean, you should know of Amram Gaon and so on. But there's one Gaon that if you don't know this person, then you need to excuse yourself. And I'm talking, of course, about someone born towards the end of the 800s. And not born in Babylonia, but in fact born in Egypt, in the Fayum. Who woke up, basically, at the age of 20 and realized that he was probably the greatest scholar of his generation. And he had to make his way to Babylonia to let everyone know that. And his name, of course, is... Chai's right at the end. No, this, 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 is, this is Saadja ibn Yusuf al-Fayumi, who we otherwise know as Saadja Gaon. He is the enormous figure whose intellect and spirituality and leadership towers over this, singularly responsible for the total revival of the Academy of Surah in the 10th century. He turns up 
in Babylonia and at the age of like 25 is immediately made the Aluf of Surah. And within a couple of short years, he's the Gaon. Now, it didn't hurt that around the time that he's doing that, when he leaves Egypt and goes to Babylonia, he's already written two books. One of which is a phenomenal uh, study of all of the uh, grammatical components of the Torah and entire dictionary and so on. So, but it is in the year 922 where Sa'adja first really burst out and showed everybody who was the boss. Because in the year 922, an extraordinary thing happened. And that is that the rabbis of the land of Israel, based in Tiberias, the rabbis of the land of Israel, and remember Israel is now, Jews can be in Israel, it's not uh, Christian anyway, it's, it's Islamic. So similar conditions as would be applying elsewhere in the, uh, in the Islamic world with some more major restrictions than we might otherwise expect. The rabbis of the land of Israel get up and they announce that they have the right to determine the calendar and that this year Rosh Hashanah will be on Tuesday. And the rabbis in Babylonia said, no, it's not. It's going to be on Thursday massive polemic and for the only time in our history did Jews in the land of Israel and do Jews outside the land of Israel observe an entirely different day for Rosh Hashanah and subsequently for the following few months including probably Pesach and so on until things got sorted out it was Saad Yagaon who entered this debate and wrote an entire book covering all aspects of the calendar of astronomy and so on using contemporary knowledge of geometry and mathematics and philosophy and science in every way to sh and to, above all Torah to show that the rabbis of Babylonia were correct. And that's just the beginning of Saadja's career. Saadja is the major force spreading the, stopping the spread of Karaite ideas in numerous books and pamphlets and lectures. And huh, then Sarja deals with, he's dealt with the Karaites, he's dealt with the calendar. He, by the way, makes determinations on the state of the Mesorah. Now, that is another thing that emerges from the Gonic period, because in the land of Israel, some people had, for the last couple of centuries, been making an industry of transmitting the correct pronunciation and vocalization of the Torah itself in what's called the Masoretic text. The most famous of those is the house of Ben Asher. But there were competing versions. It's Sa'adja who made determinations of that. And whereas he took the right to make the calendar away from the land of Israel, he did acknowledge their right to determine the proper transmission of the Mesorah, of the traditional vocalization of the Torah. And they, the ones that had developed all of the signs that we now know as trop, all of the way in which the Torah and the Nikudot, the vowel points, until then there were only consonants, or if there were systems, there were different systems. They all got unified and determined and agreed to. But Saadja Gaon's imprimatur upon that is the confirmation that was needed for history. And Sarja also had major, major fights with the Resh Galuta, 
the Resh Galuta sacked him. He sacked the Resh Galuta. There were, he wasn't necessarily the easiest person to negotiate a compromise with Sajagawan, but the Resh Galuta himself at the time, David bin Zakai himself, was quite a prickly individual, it would seem. They made peace at the end, but it was very, very turbulent in Babylonia because of those conflicts, just to show you that it wasn't all, you know, smooth sailing. And then Saja, with what was left of his mind, I mean, he did other things. He wrote an entire Arabic translation of the Torah, the Tafsir, that's still used by Arab-speaking Jews today. He used, he, his contributions are just enormous in every field. But perhaps the most significant and enduring and impactful is Saja's fight to preserve the integrity of Torah and Jewish thought against the incursions of the Kalam, of Islamic philosophy. The Muslims are coming to us and they are saying, you have a corporeal God. Allah, that's a reified God. No pictures, completely abstract, one God, but your God in your Torah has eyes, arms, legs, walks around, he's a dude. It's all corporeal. How do you deal with that? Now, that's a very complex question and it has a lot of complex answers. And that's just one of the questions. But the outcome is immensely important because it is Sajjah who writes the first really systematic philosophical work in Judaism called Emunot Vedeot, a work of huge influence on all subsequent Jewish thinkers in which Sajjah explains the different ways in which we know things, you know, logic, common sense, received wisdom and so on, and revelation. Now, revelation, what we're told by God in the Torah, revelation is the most important. But it must accord with reason. That's not the same as saying that everything has to make sense to me. But if there is an idea that emerges that conflicts with what I know to be philosophically true, I must reject it. Sa'aja prioritizes philosophy in that way because he says, you know that God is incorporeal and I can prove it philosophically and he does that God cannot have a body or any kind of physical manifestation. So when the Torah talks about the eyes of God and the hands of God, it must be allegorical. People often forget that. People often want to say, well, it says we take the Torah literally. Oh, if you take the Torah literally, then start looking at what the Torah says about Hashem. Sa'aja shows us that the Torah itself is a mashal, it is allegoric and can be interpreted allegorically if any other way was to override the logical truth of what we're saying. These are very, very profound ideas. Sa'aja also made major contributions to notions that became default in Jewish philosophy, such as free will. The existence of free will is an absolute value. The idea that the universe is created yesh me'ayin, ex nihilo, something from nothing. We don't find these ideas in the Talmud. We find them 
in the works of Sa'aja Gaon and the other great philosophers of the early Middle Ages and the late Gaonic period. So Sa'aja is immense. Uh, but he passes away around the middle of the 900s and that is when there's going to be a little bit of a decline in Surin Pumpadita and then a very bright ending that we'll talk about in a moment. But we have to go back to Europe in our remaining few minutes. I can see the time and we have things I need to talk about. Because back here, by the time we get to the middle of the 900s, by the time we get to the end of Sa'ajigaon's career, we're already starting to see the rise of the golden age of Spain as we know it. Abdul Rahman III creates the Cordovan Caliphate's openness to Jews, and Jews are encouraged to come and do whatever they want, whether it's Torah scholarship, whether it is art, architecture, science, literature, poetry, I don't know, fixing old motorbikes, whatever it is Jews want to come and do in Andalusian Spain, they can come and do it, and they help create this magnificent civilization that is a picture and paragon of toleration. Not unlike what Louis the Pious was trying to do a hundred years before in, in, in Northern Europe. But here, they actually get it off the ground and they do it. And we start to see the rise of extremely impressive Jews who are taking advantage of that situation and rise politically and economically in Spain. And probably the most famous of those who is sitting here and who you would have to know about if you were to discuss this century in Jewish history even for five minutes, would be? Almost. Not yet. No, no, no. I would not, if, if this talk contained the rumbum, I wouldn't be starting talking about him now. Chastai Ibn Shaprut, who rises effectively to be the treasurer of Spain. He is appointing not only, I mean, I mean he is basically the prime minister of the entire Cordovan Caliphate. He sends a delegation to Khazari. He, well, he receives, he does, but he receives letters from the Khazars. That's the link in with what we spoke about earlier. He's the famous one who got the letter from the Khazars. But he's also writing letters to other leaders around Europe that are fascinating that we can read about today. Chasta uh, ibn Shaprut is also supporting Jewish institutions with his influence and his resources. He is sponsoring great scholarship to come out of Spain, including some of the very, very important work that was being done intellectually in this period on the Hebrew language in order to create an understanding of Hebrew grammar. People go, oh, Hebrew grammar? Is that, well, what are you talking about? There's Hebrew and Hebrew has a grammar. No, it doesn't. Grammar are the rules of the language that are not actually explored and delineated and formalized until this period. And we know that because how many letters are there in every Hebrew root? Three. But Sajah apparently didn't realize that. And neither did anyone before him. These guys like Duna Shibn Labrut, the author of the Roy Kra, or Menachem and so on, Ibn Saruk and so on, who are creating the rules by which we start to unpack the Jewish language, the Hebrew language. It's always been there, but these revelations belong to this time in Jewish history. 
And Chasta Ibn Shaprut, of course, is followed by someone, you know, in a different sphere, basically Shmuel Hanagid, another classic example of the golden age of Spain. He was basically the John Monash of Spain. You know, he led the, he was a general in the armies of Granada, huge thing, also a scholar of the Talmud. These guys were combining, it wasn't, they were great civic figures, but also deeply important and influential figures within their own religious world as well. <coughs> but in running out of time, we just have to come back a little bit to, uh, to Babylonia. Because at the end of the Gaonic period, what we find is some uh, extraordinary Gaonim in Pumbedita, and particularly the great Rav Sharira Gaon, and who lives till about the age of 100, so he's around forever. And Sharira Gaon had written the famous history of the entire Gaonic period about how we get from the Talmud to here. He's the one that gave us the picture that, that I didn't talk about earlier today. And people are going, oh, he, he didn't mention this. But here, according to the way Sharira understands it, we have some sub-periods here like the Savuraim and the Stamaim and so on who are creating the edited versions of the Talmud. But he gives us the whole picture and he shows how the chain of transmission is complete going right up to himself. He's then followed by Rav Hai Gaon, <coughs> the most famous of the last of the Gaonim, <coughs> together with probably Shmuel Bar Chofni at Surah. These are the last of the Gaonim and Rav Hai Gaon is still sending numerous missives and letters and directives and instructions and piske din and all the rest of it out to communities all around here. Remember, remember, until now, and I've said this before and I like it and I'll say it again. If you're living in some Boch in northern Germany and you put a milchig spoon in a fleshic cup and you don't know what to do, you've got to write to Babylonia for the answer. And you've got to wait until the answer comes back. There's no immediate ready halachic reference point at this stage, although it is becoming developed. So over the course of these centuries, some of the Geonim are starting to produce digests and codes of halacha, because that's the transition we're really making from the Talmud, what it should look like, to codes of what it does look like. We're not at the big codes yet that are going to come in the period of the Rishonim, but we're starting to develop proto-codes. But still, there's no one really in Europe at the level of the Geonim in Babylonia until the arrival, basically, this is a summary of it, but this is what you would need to know, is basically until the arrival of Rabbeinu Gershom, the granddaddy of Ashkenazic Jewry, who turns up in Germany and establishes the first Torah Academy in Mainz. Now, I have exactly just a couple of minutes and I need to talk about something that I wanted to talk about just before I spoke about Chasta Ibn Shaprut, and I didn't, but I'm going to talk about it now. And that's important. As well as the full revelation now in the Gaonic period of these two tremendous forces, ideological, spiritual forces of Christianity and Islam, or we might say Esav and Yishmael, 
we're starting to see the emergence in the Gaonic period, and why it's so critical for our understanding of Jewish history, is we're seeing the emergence of two distinct type of Jewish cultures based on location emerge within the Jewish world. It's not ethnic, because everyone's related, but during this particular period, where you went from Babylonia, because over the course of this couple of centuries, Jews are leaving Babylonia. It's like a slow, inexorable leak. I always say, you know, basically Rav Hai Gaon wakes up one morning, probably a Wednesday, and goes, I'm Gaon over no one, because most people had left Babylonia, and they were, of course, going in one of two basic directions. Either they're going that way, or they're going this way. If they're going this way, they're going through mostly Christian lands. And they will be arriving in Germany and France and so on. And when they get there, they're going to find that the local people refer to their own spiritual roots as coming from Scandinavia, which they call Skansia, and the Jew go, Jews go Skansia. That sounds a lot like one of the great exilic destinations mentioned in Tanakh. This must be the lands of Ashkenaz. And the Jews who went this way through mostly Islamic countries and ended up in Spain said, well, if that's Ashkenaz, then there's another destination mentioned in the book of Ovadia. These are the lands of Sfarad. So the distinction between Ashkenazic and Sephardic Jewry basically also takes its genesis, takes its rise in the late Gaonic period. And the first super rabbi to arrive in Europe is Rabbeinu Gershon. He can answer your question about your milk spoon in your fleshy cup. He's got proper standard versions of the Talmud. He sets up a yeshiva and he basically sets the hallmark for Ashkenazic Jewry. And in the year 1002, he summons a synod, which sounds like a very Christian thing to do, but it's basically a kinus, of every, a collection of every rabbi that he can get his hands on in Europe. And they all come together and he goes, this is how it's going to go for us. These are the lands of Ashkenaz, and we're in Christian lands, and there's certain things that we are going to enact. One of them is going to be that from now on, for the next thousand years, Jewish men cannot be married to more than one woman at a time. And that was binding on Ashkenazic Jewry until basically 2002. And since then, I'll leave it to your imagination what's happened. The other thing he says is that, you look very concerned, but don't The other thing he says is that no one's going, is allowed to open anyone else's mail. That's the famous Cherem de Rabbeinu Gershon, Chadrag, that was stamped on all letters. Jews were trusted to carry letters in the Middle Ages because of that. He said that when people are forced to convert to Christianity, when they come back into the Jewish community, they're going to be fully accepted. We're not going to embarrass them by their past. A number, we're going to make things easier for women in the areas of divorce. I mean, it took a while for them to keep working on that, but certainly there were some advances made under Rabbeinu Gershom's edicts in relation to that. We're going to bring it in line to the culture around us. And important, Rabbeinu Gershom is an exact contemporary of Rav Hai Gaon. They are really exact contemporaries. So as the sun is setting on Babylonia, it's rising in Western Europe. 
and the students of Rabbeinu Gershom were the direct teachers in Mainz of the greatest product of that academy of Mainz, who comes out, a French boy who goes to study in Mainz and emerges here at having studied at the feet of Rabbeinu Gershom's direct students, and that, of course, is Rashi, Rav Shlomo Yitzchaki, who begins the classic kind of era that we have come to associate with the Rishonim, whether it is in the collation of codes of Halakha, or whether it is in the field of the commentary upon the transmission of the oral and the written Torah. These are immense projects that are going to be emerging in the next phase as we go forward. But the summary of the Gaonic period is that from the Talmud, we move into the realities of Jewish life in a very, very different world. And we are affected by that political world. Remember that Sa'adya's rise is coincident with the Fatimid Caliphate arising in Egypt. It didn't hurt his chances that he was from Egypt. And so we respond to these different political changes in different ways, but also the great spiritual changes that are coming at us and the challenges that the Jewish people have to face. And in the Gaonic period, they met those challenges so that we are placed spiritually as well as culturally spread all around this area in these domains uh, at, by the end of the Gaonic period as we move forward. And in some places even, it's kind of a little bit good. Behind all of that is the real idea that the Geonim of Babylonia are wielding huge influence in the creation of Jewish communities through this period and the challenges of Christianity and Islam. And next week we will see exactly how that plays out even further with the full revelation of the uh, Jewish continuum in the world. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.